Have you heard? Metro by T-Mobile now includes Amazon Prime. Yes, enjoy the best of shopping and entertainment, movies, TV shows, music, free shipping, and much more. All included for just $40 per line for three lines. All on the T-Mobile network. Discover the smarter way. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius. One offer per account. Offer subject to change. $12.99 per month value. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Metro customers may notice reduced speeds versus some T-Mobile customers. Video at 480p. Capable device required. See store for details and terms and conditions. Hello and welcome to the Managing Madrid podcast. This is your host, Kian Sobani, and I am joined um, on a Sunday night after we defeated Real Betis at the Benito Via Marin uh, 5-3. And to help break it down is Om Arvin, our tactical guru. Om, how are you doing, man? I'm doing good. Uh, I that was, that was an enjoyable match by the end of it. Yeah. Um, I, I really enjoyed tweeting that on the Managing Madrid account because by the end, I was just feeling so pumped. Um, now that I've calmed down a bit, uh, I, I have some criticisms to dish out. But yeah, I can't deny that I'm happy with that result when for a while it looked like that game was just going to fly away from us. In, in case you don't know this by now, you should have known this like in December at the latest. But you just can't miss a Real Betis game this season. It's... Yeah. They... Far and away, um, our friend David Garrido put out a tweet. Like He ca- kind of just went through and saw which teams have the most goals in their games combined, conceded and scored, and it's Real Betis like, by a million miles. <laughs> it's, it's just like classic Kike Setien in a nutshell, and this game kind of encapsulated it. Yeah, like, Kike yeah. Setien is the new Paco Hemis. I mean, if if you if you because both try both attempt positional play, and both teams' defense is questionable. I think I think Kike Setien's defensive structure is a little better, and I think he tries to defend more. But the, what they're trying to do is essentially the same. I think I understand what you're saying. I, I guess to be just because I have more respect for Kike Setien, <laughs> maybe I would just say that. Paco Jemez is a poor man's Kike Setien. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I I don't know. I I don't think I don't think I can disagree with that. I I do I do prefer Setien over Paco Jemez, but yeah. I still I still don't know if I feel like Setien has enough pragmatism, or at least from my opinion, is pragmatic enough. Um, I agree with that. I I think you you see glimpses of it. So he has this insistence to play the ball out of the back, and and that still lingers um, in Las Palmas, which has kind of long moved on from him. But I, in, the, in terms of ideology, it's, it's the same idea. Las Palmas have this, they bring the ball out of the back, they force the issue sometimes, and they concede. And they, they are just a complete black hole defensively. Betis are semi better than that. I think Mark Bartra like, was a good pickup for them in that sense, yeah, just yeah. to strengthen it a bit. And I thought he was good today. Um, but... I, you know, what we did see from Kike, like, it's interesting. You look at the, the game at the Bernabeu earlier this season where Betis won one nothing, 
it was a complete deviation from Kike. Like it was, he went in and he played like this low block and defended like yeah, crazy. Yeah, they yeah, got I a little bit that, lucky yeah. and then they score at the end. But and then and then this is a completely flipped script from that where they actually just like took it to us and. So oh, there's a lot to discuss in here, um, and I know you have a lot to say, and we were talking about this off-air a bit. Um, I obviously want to get your thoughts. My feeling is while there is a lot to say from a tactical point of view, I also think the theme overall was was also simple. So there's like a simple theme where we had a 4-4-2 structure, and a 4-4-2 traditionally, theoretically, should give you a sound defensive structure. But in this case, we were vertically completely open, open inviting vertical passing. Um, there was the, the passing lanes, we just weren't reading them. The zone 14 that um, we bring up every now and then, that was completely empty for us. There was no stop cap there. And it was just really easy for Setien's team to just build these passing triangles and just build their way up. I feel like it was crazy how easily they got through. And you look at the stats after the game, um, Joaquin, four key passes. Fabian, four key passes. Budabu's three. Uh, Guardado, Barragan, all these guys. Like It was just so easy for them to penetrate. Yeah, and I th- I think there's, there's, there's two reasons for that. So first, as we were discussing before we began the pod, was this continual theme where we don't know if we want to press or or if we want to sit into a medium block. Um, and obviously, you can choose to, to do intermittent pressing. The key is that when you're not pressing, your team moves out of positions from which they can press in and they become more vertically compact. Because when you press, you want your players to be higher up the pitch and position in a way where they have access to the ball so they can effectively try to win it back or force bad passes. And so after that first minute where we pressed rather well, we did that thing again where we put our players in position where they can access the ball and then they didn't really press. And so it became rather easy, especially with with Setien's style of play, to pass, pass their way out of the back and access our final third. But I, I don't know if that was the biggest issue. It was it was definitely an issue, but for me, what was much more worrying was the fact that we decided to set up in a 4-4-2 against a team that loves to use positional play because positional play was essentially invented to defeat teams that played in the 4-4-2. And because of that, we saw for, for a period in like the early 2010s that the 442 became sort of obsolete because of that and then we we've kind of seen a resurgence which with with managers kind of adapting it to the modern game but it it didn't really work today and the reason is is because when you play in a 442 you are at a disadvantage in midfield numerically if you're playing a team that has three three in midfield so that doesn't sort. That doesn't seem to make sense on the face of it because Betis Betis played with the back five, so they had they had Mark Bartra in central defense. Um, they had Mandi and they had Amat in central defense. So there were those three guys, and Bartra was in between both of the the, the center backs flanking him, and so what Setien did was once when when Betis were in possession, Bartra would step up 
into midfield and kind of act as a defensive midfielder. So there's two ways you can approach positional play. You can play with the back five or you can go with the more classic traditional 4-3-3. And so the whole point of positional play is to have numerical superiority in all parts of the pitch when when you're in possession. So when playing with the back five, you, you have... You have three at the back, the fullbacks push up. So you have three center backs versus the two strikers. So mm-hmm. if we're attempting to press the center backs, they can play their way around the strikers. And then when you move into midfield, Bartra will step up and he'll create an overload against Casemiro and Kovacic. And that's what they were doing. So to compensate for that, we we started to move extremely narrow because Setien would attempt to, for example, penetrate through the right wing through passing triangles. So it would be Ruiz, um, whichever whichever player was the winger and the fullback, and then the striker. They'd all try to combine on, on the right flank, for example, and try to bypass us there. And so that, that gives them an overload on that side. And so we'd, we'd over-adjust. So we'd, we'd bring our far, our far side winger too narrow to try to, to, try to make that area hors- uh, vertically compact. And that ruined our horizontal compactness because then Betis would play their play their way out of that congested area and simply switch the ball to the on-rushing fullback on the other side and then they would access our final third and for the first 11 minutes or so we got away with it and then we we scored and Betis decided to they decided to basically shape up and get into the game and they stopped playing askew passes and once they started completing their passes in the final third, it was pretty much over for us. And they destroyed us for large portions of the game. And I took a Sergio Ramos set piece to get us back in it, which knocked Betis off balance. And within a nine-minute period, Betis completely lost their composure. They were giving the ball away stupidly. And we scored another goal. And then that was pretty much it. And, and then Casemiro chipped it to Ronaldo. And it was 4-2. And it was just too much for Betis to overcome. But... From a tactical perspective, I do not think we approached this game properly. And it was concerning to me to see us approach uh, a coach who is well known for his positional play. He, he, he almost always does it with the 4-4-2, with the formation that is generally weak to the type of play that is preferred by Setien. And I think it showed today, and I think we got away with it a little bit. Everything you just said encapsulates perfectly uh, why the 442 just didn't work. And there's only so much I can add to everything you just said, so I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time. But you look at all four of the midfielders and neither of them are in a position to hold the line. Like, it's 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 just they, they got sliced because they were outnumbered. And I think you look at the, the build-up to the natural goal, it was, it was basically the perfect example of yeah, yeah, how it yeah. went wrong, right? And then you look at Joaquin who gets through. And by the way, Joaquin has just had an amazing career and I love him. And I, as a player, he's just fun. Uh, he also gives us a lot of post-game gold generally throughout his career. He's just a really likable person. And God love him and he's still playing at this level this late. But there's no way we should have made him look the way we did at certain times in this game. And mm-hmm. in the in the build-up to the Nacho goal... He has so much space to run into that he actually takes a really heavy touch. And he just has so much time to make up for that heavy touch because no one is in sight to close him down. And then he, he passes it to the left. And then then you have the, the Nacho on goal disaster. And I think even like 
offensively, like where was Gareth Bale in this game? And there's, a, I think there's a question about this, but I think he was just isolated, and I don't, I don't like him in the four four two. And he was quiet, and then every when he got the ball, he didn't look that sharp. And um, a lot has been said about like this halftime team talk and and like everything that changed in the second half and. Um, Asensio was candid about it after the game. He said that, you know, we had an important halftime team talk, which is good. You want We want them to recognize the issues, obviously, and address them. Zidane said they pressed a bit better and, and all this and actually talked about tactics in a rare moment after the game. I'm, I'm unsure if, every, what, if that is what really changed it. I think it was two things. So one is, first of all, Kike Setien team, it eventually collapses and it concedes. Like, they didn't play as well. They, you know, it's true Real Madrid pressed them a bit, but they just they just opened up. And when the game opened up the way it did, it just allowed players like Lucas Vasquez. By the way, Lucas Vasquez was really good in this game. I, I'm, I think we should give him a special shout out. Yep, that needs to be said. Yeah, six key passes. He was really good defensively. You know, as an individual, I think obviously there were like cohesive team problems defensively. But I thought he did well. Um, but did that when that happened, it benefited Asensio. It happened. It benefited Vasquez. It benefited Carvajal, who won an amazing tear to Asensio's second goal. Um, and also, Bale got a bit more involved at that point if he had been quiet all game. And the other thing you mentioned off air, which was really interesting, was the what you pointed out was more than anything, more than the halftime team talk. I think it was the Ramos goal that changed it, right? Yeah, the Ramos goal essentially changed everything because i i think it's fair to say with setian teams that they really react to to events in the game because a lot of the a lot of the way that setian wants his team to play especially because his individuals aren't necessarily as talented as teams that usually play positional play which are your barcelona's your basically any team that plays under pep guardiola and and you have Sari as well, so at Napoli. And so it requires the team to have a lot of confidence because while there are a lot of talented players on Betis, they're not as good as, for example, Busquets or Piquet when playing out from the back. So they need a lot of confidence when they're playing out from the back, when they're trying to have these little one-two passes, when they're trying to do all these flicks. And I think the Ramos goal just deflated them because they felt like they were on top and that goal just came out of nowhere because before that goal, it looked like Betis was going to thrash us again. They were not making our players to start the second half once again, which was kind of a running theme throughout the match. And then the Ramos goal just kind of came out of nowhere and deflated them. And right after that, you can immediately tell that Betis lost a bit of their composure because they immediately started to give the ball away at that at the back, combined with a bit more consistent pressing like Zidane mentioned after the match definitely worked in our favor and so in that nine minute period I mentioned our expected goals just shot up like crazy if you go to Mm. understat.com and you and you look at the timing chart for expected goals in between the Ramos goal and the Asensio goal our expected goals just they went nuts It, it just exploded and Betis has just stayed the same and then after that the normal pattern of play resumed and that essentially changed it that tiny period where Ramos came in scoring I think his second set piece goal in like in like a week or so and Betis lost their composure and I that just shows how how quickly a football game can change and 
while I, I think it's sort of you can take that as a negative, right? You can look at that and say, well, we didn't play good for most of the game and we got kind of lucky that in this portion of the game, we capitalized on it. But I think there's also a positive, right? Because so much of this season, we haven't been capitalizing on chances. We haven't been taking chances in games where the momentum shifts in our favor and and we, we haven't managed to convert chances. And this game we did. Mm. And that that's a positive thing because when you're being outplayed, there are always going to be moments in a game where you can snatch the match back from the opponent. And we had that, we had that in this match and, and we definitely snatched the chances. And that is something we're going to need going forward in the champions league. So that was a positive thing to see. Do you have the overall XG for this game? Yes, I do. So it was, according to understat, it was 2.47 expected goals for Real Betis yeah. and 1.84 for Real Madrid. So unbelievable. We definitely, we definitely got a bit lucky. Whichever way you put it, we got lucky to come away with a five-five-three victory. But it is, it's damn good to see that we have our shooting boots on finally. This is crazy. So that in the past few weeks, um, this is. You may or may not agree, but this is the reality, I think. We've seen the Real Madrid of last season. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, five against Sociedad, five against Betis, three against PSG, seven against Depor, four against Valencia. Uh, and our XG has been ro- low relative to what it was earlier this season, and we're just scoring now. It's, it's it's actually amazing how much just score putting the ball in the back of the net, how many problems it masks, isn't it? Like <laughs> our, our tone completely changes the way we talk, the way we are post game, the comments mm-hmm. on managing Madrid, how happy they are. Like it's it's literally that's the margin of error. We put our chances away or we don't. Like it, you know, we we kind of brush aside the problems a bit. We know their problems, but I mean Zidane said because someone asked him after the game. Uh, about like you know conceding and the way Betty's played, and he was like, "Yeah, I, I, it doesn't bother me that we conceded three goals because we scored five. And that's the reality. Like this is the, these are the articles we wrote in the preseason, and mm-hmm. after the Super Cup, we were like, "Yeah, you know, Real Madrid has, you know, I wrote about it how how well Real Madrid started reading the passing lanes at that point. It was peaking, but anytime they did get beat, uh." And they didn't have like a last ditch tackle to ch- to save them. They would just overrun the opponent anyway. So why doesn't it doesn't really matter so much that they leak goals here and there because they just go on a tear on the other side. And the past five six games, this is essentially it. Like we we grind out results. We don't play particularly well. We finish our chances and we close the game out. And that's what we've been waiting for. Yeah, and that's why I I generally try to emphasize focusing on the process over the results. So I was arguing with one dude on Twitter who was... You were arguing with a dude on Twitter? (laughs) When does that happen? So just par for the course for me, right? And he was was trying to tell me that, in his opinion, the 4-4-2 wasn't necessarily an issue, Mm -hmm. seeing as as we won the game, essentially. And Mm. it's, it's just... Like, logically, that doesn't make sense, right? <laughs> because there are so many other factors that come into to what defines a result. There's luck. There's individual performances, such as the Donny Carvajal run where he beat four players and scored the goal, which had nothing to do with formation. And you have to consider all those factors when it's coming together. It's, a, it's always about trying to isolate 
each factor in your mind and trying to analyze how that would affect the result. It's not simply a case of just looking at what correlates and saying there's causation because yeah. there are there's so many factors. And for example, every time Lucas Vasquez has started for Real Madrid, we've won. And so you can say we should play Lucas Vasquez all the time. Therefore, we'll always win. And that's illogical because that's obviously not going to happen, right? It's just a case of correlation, mm-hmm. not equaling causation, which is not to say that Lucas Vasquez can't help us. He was brilliant this match. I love the guy. And I think he deserves a lot of the minutes he gets. But that's just an example of how you have to look deeper than that, and which is why it's more important to look at the process over results. And oddly enough, it's just not a thing that exists in the popular discourse of soccer. Whereas if you look look at a sport like basketball, the whole idea of focusing on process over results is just a, a thing really present in the minds of fans. And it's something that the players are really open about. It's like Joel Embiid who needs to come on the Managing Madrid podcast, by the way. Yes. He, he, his, his tagline is trust the process. And that's something that needs to transfer to, to, to football. Fans need to trust the process. Or if the process isn't good enough, you need to amend it. Just looking at results isn't good enough because there's so much noise, especially in a sport like football. And especially when we don't necessarily have all the stats available to us. To be able to analyze all that noise, to be very careful about how you look at results, because you know sometimes it just it just doesn't tell you the truth. It just doesn't tell you how good we're playing or how badly we're playing. Yeah. Um, so the Ramos, he's he's. I think it's a second in in within two weeks for sure. Um, he scored off a set piece header. So your curse is completely broken. Yeah, it's broken. Just Fine. please don't write an article again about this subject. Just leave it. Uh, here's some stats for you. And this is posted by uh, Sergio Vamos, a managing Madrid commenter. I told him I'd give him a shout-out on the podcast. Real Madrid has now scored 6,000 goals. Uh, in the league, right? Is it the league? Yeah, in the league. Yeah, in La yeah. Liga. 1,000 of them in the past 10 years. Um, Jesus Christ! So just just to pay our respects, here are each player that scored the milestones. The first goal in club in La Liga history, Lascano. I don't know who this person is. I would love to do some research on him. Sounds like an interesting article in the summertime when we don't have much to talk about. His name is Lascano, nineteen twenty nine. Number one thousand, Paino, nineteen fifty. Number two thousand, Paco Gento, nineteen sixty three. Number 3,000, Juanito, 1981. 4,000, Bam Bam Zamorano, 1994. 5,000, Guti, 2008. And 6,000 today, Marco Asensio, 2018. Just to pay our respects, you know. Um, two elephants in the room. Uh, to me. Sergio Ramos and Casemiro's passing. Uh, yeah, I mean, especially especially Casemiro, right? Who, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously there is Ramos as well, um, but Casemiro has looked this way for a good portion of the season now, and it's worrying because I thought I I didn't think he'd become suddenly like uh, a Luka Modric or Tony Kroos when playing out from the back, but it looked like especially from the Super Cup games and the way he performed to the latter 
latter part of the 2016-17 season that he had improved significantly in his on-the-ball ability and his ability to deal with pressure to the point where he wasn't a consistent liability anymore. And it looks like he's gone back to that. And it was really, really clear that Setien was targeting Casemiro with, with his press because he knew he was the most vulnerable link in the side, and he was vulnerable. And it's, as, as I mentioned before, it's not just the fact that Casemiro gives the ball away, it's the fact that he will complete his passes to his teammate, but the passes will be badly weighted, they, they'll be in the air, it, it's just the flight of the ball will be wrong, so it makes it difficult for his teammates to control the pass, and they'll, they'll end up losing the ball. And, and then you can see, right, like, the, the team, the whole team will start avoiding passing the ball to Casemiro and build up. If you look at the heat maps, Mateo Kovacic is deeper than Casemiro is. And, and heat maps represent all the touches a player has when he's on the ball. And so that is not something you want, right? Casemiro is the defensive midfielder. Kovacic is the offensively talented player. You want it to be the reverse. You want Kovacic higher up the pitch. And continually we see that Casemiro is always the one higher up the pitch because we need to dodge him and build up and it's a problem especially when we play teams who want to press like this I I mean we're a bit lucky that Setien's teams aren't great defensively and that their their back line isn't the most disciplined as we saw and in a lot of the goals they concede in that when they press the wingers don't track back so even if they win the ball a lot we'll still get a lot of chances to hit them on the counter and it doesn't help, right, when you have a player like Casemiro, who who this is his weakness, when you have a player like Ramos, who's usually reliable on the ball, giving it away all the time. And it wasn't just Ramos, to be honest. Kovacic looked pretty uncomfortable, which I think had something yeah. to do with him being partnered with Casemiro. And yeah, it it was something that could have lost us the game, because especially in the first 11 minutes where the game was really back and forth, Betis were not completing their passes in the final third. They were they were looking to find the rhythm, and if they had in that in that section of the game, they could have ended the whole thing before halftime. Essentially, when they found their rhythm, they just didn't have enough time to put away three goals. Yeah, I mean, if we're being completely fair, um, Kovacic just wasn't good either. Mm-hmm. Kovacic uh, lost possession five times. Yeah, and. You know, I think the reality is I'm not sure how much this scheme benefited him. and But also, I'm not sure if we've seen the Kovacic that we know this season yet. I'm trying to think back to, like, yeah, standout I, performances. I, I can't think of any, but correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure there are a couple, but they're mm-hmm. just not coming. I'm just not able to remember. And I think a lot of it has to do with, right, is he's played when he played. Um, especially in the Copa del Rey matches, he's played with an entirely new team, right? He's played with Llorente and Ceballos yeah. in midfield, and he hasn't had any sort of stability in his midfield partnerships, and he hasn't been able to thrive. And this game was... It would have sucked to play as, as a Real Madrid central midfielder in this game because on defense, you were getting overloaded constantly. If you were trying to tackle one man, there was always a free man for the other team to pass to. And then on offense, you were getting pressed all over the place. And if you were Kovacic, by by this, by as the game passed on, you were the only outlet that Real Madrid were looking for if they were looking to play out the back. And Casemiro, I mean, to be fair, that this did press really well at times. So even if even if 
you know, Casimir and Kovacic had been damn near perfect in possession, they would have lost it a lot. But yeah, it wasn't a good day for our central midfielders. Um, let's take some questions. So we have patron questions that we want to address. So uh, patreon.com slash managing Madrid is where you can go to join our ever-growing Patreon family. Um, you can support the show. You can pledge as little as a dollar. You get bonus patron shows, midweek shows, um, and all the Champions League ones fall under there. So the the PSG game last week was one of our most listened to podcasts, and that was for our patrons. And uh, next, the second leg also patron podcast. If you want access to those plus other rewards, check us out patreon.com slash managing Madrid. First patron question from Sayantan Nandi. Is Bale trying too hard or lacking in confidence or is the 4-4-2 not suiting him? So, yeah, this was something you addressed earlier and I think it's the latter. Yeah. Um, Bale is definitely not lacking in confidence since coming back. I, I don't know what benching him versus PSG might have done to his mentality, but since coming back from injury, he's been one of our best players and I think... Bale, Bale's a professional. I don't think he would have let that affect him too much. And it, it's just, he's not a striker. I, I don't know what else to say. You yeah. can't put players in positions that they're not suited to. And I think because the four four two with Ronaldo and Bale up top worked so well versus Dortmund and the group stage match in the Champions League this season, people got kind of excited for it because... A lot of people were and still are tired of having Benzema on the side playing up top with Ronaldo. Mm-hmm. And what they want to see is a Bale-Ronaldo pairing. So Benzema is out of the side. And I mean, I, I get it if you if you think Benzema's past it. You don't want him to the side as much. But replacing him with Bale in a 4-4-2 is not the solution. Because the thing with the Dortmund match was Dortmund was just horrible defensively. They, they had such an this had such a high line and, and they yeah. weren't pressing effectively within it. All we had to do was just play the ball over the top and have Bale and Ronaldo run in behind. And so obviously they were effective there. Right. But against any other team that's even remotely competent, it's just uncomfortable uncomfortable for Bale. If you look at his heat map, he hardly touched the ball in central areas at all. Yeah. He he, he barely first of all, he barely touched the ball. He had twenty five touches. Yeah. And when he did, it was all out wide because that's where he's comfortable. He's not He's not a player that will that will lead the line for you. I mean, he can he can drift centrally all over the place, but he should definitely not be restricted there. In a four four two, you need two classic center forwards working in tandem, and one of those players has to be the player that moves into midfield to link, while the other one runs in behind. and And they can alternate doing that, but one player always has to be doing that. And Bale and Ronaldo are just too similar in the way they approach the game because they're both wingers who are placed as center forwards that it's just never gonna never gonna work the best. And Ronaldo, who's become accustomed to playing as a striker, played very well. Um, but Bale, who's not and who I don't think ever will be, just obviously was was not a a, a big part of that game for large periods until. Set until Betis started giving the ball away, and we were a lot. We were able to transition high up the pitch, and, and then we created a couple of chances for Bale. But that was about it. So the only, um, the only person, the only starter on the field who made less touch, who had less touches and made less passes than him was Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. Um, and I guess Ronaldo just got the ball in better positions. Like to me, the the four four two just isolates him. It 
if you're gonna if you want to bench Benzema, the solution for me is always to put Bale in a deeper role because he was he wasn't you know really pressing in this game. He wasn't uh, helping the midfield during that barrage, and the team was still outnumbered there. Just just put him a bit deeper. I it it doesn't it shouldn't have to be a four four two for for him to thrive. It just he looked lost. I don't think it's a confidence issue or it had to do with not mm-hmm. starting against PSG because. He came on against PSG and looked really good in that in that game, the same game. So I don't think vanish he you know his confidence all of a sudden vanished. But I think he just needs to be a bit more involved. He needs to be the alpha male in order to thrive. And when he's barely touching the ball all game, then and then when he does get it, he doesn't look sharp. He looks a bit cold. He had that missed chance. He had uh, a couple moments where he just couldn't get past his man. It just it wasn't it wasn't him tonight. And. Um, yeah, and and the point about Ronaldo having less touches but performing better is a good one because that shows that Ronaldo has accustomed himself to playing this role because whenever Ronaldo plays in this kind of system, he doesn't get nearly as many touches as he does when he's out wide. So he knows how how to be efficient with his movements, where he needs to be to to be able to make an impact with the minimal amount of touches he's going to get because despite the small amount of touches he got no one who saw that game is going to come away thinking Ronaldo played a bad game or that he wasn't effective yeah. because he he had the most shots on the team he had five shots he created two chances he had two dribbles and like you said he was receiving the ball in better positions and if you look at his heat map he was also receiving the ball centrally as well his touches were more distributed so it's something he's accustomed to and it's something Bale isn't and while Bale is in his prime, I don't think we should be playing him in such limited roles. I think it makes sense with Ronaldo, right? Because he doesn't necessarily impact the overall game in the way that he used to. So it's okay to put him in an area where he's there to affect the final third and the final third only. But for Bale, while he's in his prime, we need to put him in situations where he can influence the whole game because that's where he's still the most effective and that's where, what he's most comfortable doing at the moment. Right. And also Ronaldo is maybe maybe the most underrated uh, just off ball mover in history mm-hmm. <laughs> like what we spent not we but the you know the general public so much of it it's they spent so much time talking about this tappins if tapping the ball was that easy everyone, everyone would have would as do. many goals yeah. as ronaldo he's a, he's a genius off the ball he knows he has instinct that you just can't teach and so like it, he doesn't need many touches. But I think someone like Bale, he needs to be involved. Mm-hmm. Um, Josie dos Santos, another patron, says after the PSG game, I said I thought Asensio should start the second leg. After an amazing performance in this game, is it any more likely? Yeah, I don't. I feel like maybe we didn't talk about Asensio enough, but he was. Uh, oh yeah, Asensio is fabulous. Yeah. yeah. Um. Is it more likely? Uh, at this point, I, I don't know if I can really predict what Zidane does anymore. I don't know if I ever could. Um, I think him benching Bale versus the PSG game, which is a big shock because Bale always starts when fit. And if, if there was, because there were a lot of people convinced that even after Bale came back from injury, Isco was going to stay on the lineup, but that didn't happen. Bale, Bale came back in. He was immediately the number one guy. Mm-hmm. And... And that's why it was so surprising to see Isco play versus PSG. So I think because of the desperate position we were in at the time, you know, entering the PSG game fourth in the league, and now 
we have a 3-1 advantage and I think Zidane might just say what the hell let me just try things um which has generally been his philosophy especially when he he feels like everything is against him so I don't know I wouldn't put it past him to see Asensio start um but I just hope it's not in I just hope it's not in some kind of like diamond thing usually if Asensio starts it's like a a 4-4-2 or a 4-3-3 and I I hope we don't see the 4-4-2 with Bale and Ronaldo again if he starts I would like to see Benzema and Ronaldo up top if it's a 4-4-2 but I don't know what that does to Bale and I would really like Bale to play versus PSG so I guess a 4-3-3 with maybe Ronaldo up top as a lone forward might be all right um there's a lot of possibilities but I just hope that he doesn't if he's going to start a sensu he doesn't squeeze him in 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 a way that compromises the the balance of the rest of the team which is kind of what we saw with Isco and the diamond for for this season I I'm sure Asensio plays one way or the other, whether it's off the bench. I, I have I have my doubts that he'd start, but you know who knows. Like mm-hmm. you said, it's unpredictable in many ways. What Zidane's going to do? Um, I imagine there's going to be a plethora of counterattacking opportunities against PSG in the second leg. So I I think it's crazy if Bale doesn't start that game. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. They're yeah. going to have to go for it. Yeah. I mean, I, I made the point to Gabe because I said the same thing to Gabe, but then I was trying to play the devil's advocate to that to that uh, on the patron pod after the game last week. And I said, well, maybe Zidane sees, um, just wants to control the game again if if PS, and just hold the ball and see the game out and then bring Bale in the second half again. But either way, I, I think Bale starts. Like, he's, he's part of our best 11. I think he should start. Um by the way, someone asked on Twitter, um, quick quick deviation from patron questions, uh, a non-patron question uh, on Twitter on the Managing Madrid account. It's from at Bale underscore RM underscore. He says, if Marcelo doesn't make it for the PSG game, who would you rather have as a left back, Nacho or Teo? So I don't think there's any updates, but apparently it's a right hamstring thing and... And hopefully it's just a precaution. But in a theoretical situation where I don't think it, it will get to that, it's it's always Nacho in that situation, right? Yeah. Because this basically the only reason I'm taking this question even because is because um, it leads us into a tail discussion. And one of the things we forgot to talk about was the fact that Real Betis are no- notorious for making late game comebacks. They've come back in crazy fashion, like with 10 minutes to go a lot of times a season. And if they don't make the full remontada, they score, they get consolation goals, and they make the opponent sweat. And we were up two goals, and Sergio Leon scored. And then you watch, you zoom out, and you realize Teo's just jogging back. And he he could have prevented that goal. He has the pace, he has the power, uh, he had the fresh legs to do, and he just didn't. And you just can't switch off. You can't switch off in any game. You can't switch off... For sure, with a two-goal lead against Betis away from home. Yeah, just as a side note, that goal is another perfect example of how uh, Setien manipulated the four-four-two with positional play. If you're interested in going back and seeing that, because even though Isco came on, we still defended in a four-four-two with Asensio joining Ronaldo up top. 
But besides that, right, like you're completely you're completely correct. I I mean I, I thought up to that point Dale was actually okay. I mean he he had a really good run forward, I think, on one of them where he took out two guys and burst into the box and offensively he was showing a lot more than I'd seen from him um in the past this season and that was promising, but I mean I guess that's just I, I don't know if it's so much about effort as much as just him switching off. I think that's mm-hmm. at the 84th minute, I think, is when the goal happened um, with us. Four, we're, we're up two goals. It's 4-2. I think he's just not necessarily paying attention to to his surroundings. He's caught ball watching. He doesn't see him, he see, see the player sneaking at the back post. Obviously, I'm, I'm not excusing that. I'm not saying that that's acceptable. It's obviously a terrible mistake. But I think that's just part of the learning process with the young fullback like Teo. Um, and it was disappointing because I think it's going to overshadow what I think was one of his better games to the offensive side because I think there were positives to take there. But yeah, that was definitely not a great moment for him. Mark Rady says, Holy crap, that game almost blew up my heart. I love watching this season's Betis as it's always a goal fest. How will Madrid do without Cruz for the next few weeks? Thanks again. So, two weeks... I think it won't be as bad if Modric is there. It Modric just has this trait about him where he just organizes everybody. He he's composed. He controls the tempo. He's insanely smart defensively. Um, always covering. Always helping. Always showing as an outlet. And obviously, the game looks completely different with Modric there. Um. I don't know. Do you see much changing? Like we last year, we saw Kroos go out for an extended period of time, and Kovacic slid in, and he was really good. We even lost Kroos uh, and Casemiro at the same time, and Kovacic really stepped up. So I think if you have Kovacic and Modric together, which I think is this should be an opportunity for Kovacic. I, in my opinion, he should be the one to get a lot of playing time here. I think the team will be fine. I I think I think for two weeks we can be all right, but. If in answering specifically when he says, um, "Well, how will he do?" I think I think we'll do fine. But if you're looking at at things that we lose without Kroos there, because there's always some of those people that are like, "What, what does Kroos give us?" Yeah. If you look at a game like today where we're being pressed and the opposition is relentless and and the midfield is getting overloaded. You look at a player like Kroos, who is a press-resistant genius. I mean, we would we would have looked a lot calmer under that under that Betis press with Kroos in the side. Not just because he can pass his way out of it perfectly, but because of the way he intelligently positions himself to overload mm-hmm. opposition presses. How he has this clever little first touch that takes the ball away from from the defender and gives him space and time to play his next pass. Obviously, Modric is also a press resistance genius, but I think Kroos is really the best in the world at that. And when it comes to needing some player to slow down the tempo and regain control of the game, it's Kroos. Because so much of of, of the the game against Betis was defined by back-and-forth play. And I always get nervous when that happens because that kind of blows the game wide open and it can go either way. And especially when you're in the lead, you want a player who can just slow things down and, and control things and... As good as Kovacic is as a player, I don't think that's really a trait he has. I think he sometimes thrives on the chaos because of how good he is with the ball. But that can also lead to the game getting away from a team. And I think a player like Kroos would just slow things down and just assert his influence over the game. 
And so it shouldn't be the biggest deal to not have him for the next two weeks, given the depth in midfield we have. But if we're going to play like this, then yes, I think he will be a big miss. Um, being press resistant and being press resistant the way Kroos is, is one of the most underrated things and unnoticed things, I think, in football. And I think it's one of those things that it's not as easily visible on the pitch. But if you just watch Kroos without the ball the entire game, you'll truly appreciate what he brings to the table. Um, you said press resistant genius, I think. I, I 100% agree with that wording. Last patron question. I don't know if it's a question, if it's a comment. It's just a cool thing. So one of our patrons, Sheikh Hatiri, went in and did a deep, deep dive on some stats and it's an observation that we can kind of just talk about and it will take away from this take us away from this Betis game. Shay says I couldn't fall asleep so I did a little statistic digging. The last time we topped the table and least goals conceded was 2007-2008. During this time Barcelona has topped 5 times and Atletico 4 times. Since Simeone we haven't even finished second, often third and occasionally fourth. Things get better. The second last time we topped the table was 1992-1993 season. In fact, since 1968-69, I'm um, we have topped the table of the goals conceded only six times. Last year, we had 10 clean sheets. Barcelona had 13, Atletico 19. We couldn't even keep our goals shut against Real Sociedad. What the F is wrong with us? This is the greatest club on earth. How can we not figure out our defensive system? We, had, we have had 8th and 10th place finishes in... in in the 2000s. Can you make sense out of this? And how did Victor Valdez, who at his prime couldn't save a ball for his life, win five Zamora trophies? <laughs> I think, um, I mean, I think, I think just, Valdez was okay. He's not as bad as people like to pretend he was, but his his shot-stopping abilities weren't on the level of, say, an Iker Casillas. I think, I think honestly, that's, that's a good way to start answering that question, right? Because... The reason Valdez was such a valued goalkeeper in Barcelona, and especially under Pep, was because he was so good for Barcelona's system. Because he he was one of those one of the first goalkeepers of this newer generation of goalkeepers that played the ball out of the back fairly well, which is what you need in in a positional play system under Pep Guardiola. You need your goalkeeper to be able to pass his way out of the back, because Pep Pep doesn't just want to bomb the ball up the field, and so. That idea of, of, of having players that fit a system and having systems, concrete philosophies like that is going to influence your defensive system. So if you want to wonder why Barcelona's defense ha- has acquired more clean sheets than us o- over this period that, that has been named is because their system has generally been, especially in the past decade or so, has been more cohesive. It's been more competent. So, because when when you look at our defenders individually with Barcelona's, we we always say ours are better, but as a system, Barcelona's defensive system is better because yeah. they press really well. They press cohesively. Everyone does their part in the side, and there's always a consistent tactical plan that's applied every time. And especially on this is especially true under Valverde, who's one of the best pressing coaches in the entire world. And Real Madrid has never pressed consistently as far back as as you can go. And 
a lot of the players that we've bought, especially in the early 2000s, made it very, very difficult to defend as a team and it put a lot of pressure on our talented defensive players. I mean, we had Fabio Cannavaro at one point. He was the best, who was named the best player in the world. And he, he even he looked terrible at times in our system. And it's because simply because the systems we have constructed and this this lack of a philosophy in that sense, right, that, that managers don't have to adhere to, and, and some of the transfer policy that we've had over time has made it very, very difficult to be a consistent defensive team. And it's as simple as that. I mean, it's no surprise to see that Simeone comes to Atletico Madrid, institutes a very specific, cohesive defensive system, and then acquires talent that helps solidify that defensive system. And then they have four clean sheets in how many every years that was, that was named. I, it, I mean, it's as simple as that. It has to do with system. It has to do with personnel and the fact that Real Madrid is inconsistent in both. I have this theory that Real Madrid will never be a great defensive team ever. And it just wasn't meant to be for us. And I came to this conclusion in 2006-2007 when, when you brought this up, kind of. But we signed Fabio Cannavaro, who had one of the greatest seasons a defender has ever had in the history of the game. And he dominated a World Cup like I never knew a, d- a defender could dominate it. Like I've never seen a defender dominate a tournament, you know, and he did it. And we brought him in and it was like we were like all little kids in a candy store because we didn't know what to do. We've never actually signed a defender like that. Like we, our signings have never been so focused on getting the best defender in the world. It was always about like who was the, the biggest offensive unicorn and how do we fill the team with, with stars. We brought in Cannavaro and it was crazy exciting and he just looked, he was, <laughs> he was a black hole. He was, he was suffering, he was treading water, he was a disaster. And at that point I made up my mind that if we had brought in Prime Beckenbauer and Prime Bess- Baresi as a partnership, we would still, they would still be bad. And it's a, it's a systematic, schematic issue. Um, now, having said that, um, we will have exceptions to this rule. So the following year, 2007-2008, was when we had a really solid defensive line where Cannavaro played a little bit better because it was, uh, it was Cannavaro, it was Ramos, it was Gabriel Heinze, and... Uh, Pepe, Pepe was the big one. Pepe, Ramos, Cannavaro, Heinze. And those four worked well together. And um, one of the greatest performances by a defender I've ever seen in Real Madrid was Pepe that year in a Clasico where he put Samuel Eto in his pocket. Um, so there's exceptions to this rule. But I think generally, like, you know, unless like Mourinho comes every now and then, we, we play really defensive. Like, it's hard to compete. Barcelona aren't a good defensive team theoretically, but the reason they are they don't concede goals is because of the reasons you mentioned. They're tremendous at counterpressing and holding the ball, and they defend by holding the ball. And they play a high line, and they try to snuff out every counterattack. And Atletic are great because their whole identity is built around being defensive. And Real Madrid has just never been that historically. Like Even before this kind of surge of good defenders we got, now like in this era with Pepe and Ramos before that you know we had Hierro and Santa Maria and Sanchez and we didn't really have like a long list of great central defenders it was never really Mm -hmm. in our DNA so Uh, I mean I think 
I think what people need to understand when it comes to 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 defensive solidity is that system matters more than personnel. Mm -hmm. And I think this is why attackers cost more than individuals defenders do defenders do because it is much harder for an individual defender to make an impact the same way an individual attacker can. So I mean, we've seen countless amounts of sides where an individual attacker can just carry his team's entire offense and make things happen and, and push them up the table. But it's very, very difficult for an individual defender to do it because it relies so much more on a system, right? Because if you're a great individual attacker, you can just take the ball and you can dribble past a bunch of players. But when you're a defender, you're working without the ball. And when you're working without the ball, you have to work in tandem with the people next to you. So if you take Leonardo Bonucci, who in my opinion was the best defender in the world last season, and he was put in AC Milan, a, a team that especially at the beginning of the season did not have a great defensive system, and he looked disastrous. I mean, mm -hmm. people were wondering, how did I ever think he was the best defender in the world? And it's because mm -hmm. while he definitely was, it, it, it just matters so much less to, to be to be an in, uh, to have quality individual defenders than it does to have a quality individual system. It's just it doesn't matter how great you are. I mean Sergio Ramos, for all the stick he gets, and I per, I've criticized him a ton of times for not being consistent enough. Some of that has is simply down to the fact that Real Madrid aren't a consistent defensive unit. I mean, sometimes he truly is spectacular and will still ship three goals because there's only so much one guy can do if the if if the people around him aren't working in tandem, and. I think that pretty much explains, along with the reasons we mentioned before, why Real Madrid have never consistently been a good defensive side. I mean, look at the goals we've conceded this season. Like, of course, we can blame individual players, but we just like look at the goal we conceded against Betis earlier this season. That loss, the goals mm -hmm. we conceded against Tottenham, uh, against Malaga, against you know, just go down the list. Uh, a lot of these were just us being gung-ho and just not defending. And you can't blame individual players. I mean, you can to an extent. But again, like these are just schematic issues. And and this is why we just we concede. I mean, we went for years, like in the mid-2000s, where we just, you know, we had some bad, bad years defensively there, especially. Um, and we had like I remember uh, a pairing of a really really old Hierro and Helguera together, and Helguera was out of position, and Hierro was a grandfather. And and then we tried with Havon, <laughs> and then we had like all these little like we had like a lot of journeymen who came and went, and it was just and for years the only reason by some miracle we didn't concede three million goals per game was because Iker Casillas was on a completely different level, like he was a complete alien and. He was a one-man defensive line just stopping everything. Like, for years, literally, we had... The only reason we were winning games was because Casillas was saving everything. And then yeah. we had no defense, no midfield, and then OG Ronaldo was scoring. It was like a two-man team. Casillas <laughs> saving and OG Ronaldo scoring goals. And that's what it was for, like, a year or two. And, you know, so... I think it's just not in our DNA. And why it's not in our DNA is because... DNA is because of the reasons we, we mentioned and you mentioned is because... Um, we have a lot of schematic issues that just kind of disregard a lot of defensive principles. And it wasn't speaking of like how I was talking about how individuals can't make that much of a difference. If it it speaks to I think the fact that Varane has actually had a fantastic individual season, and not enough people are talking about it. 
And I've heard commentators, I've seen people on Twitter saying Varane's having a bad season because of how much we've conceded. Yeah. And if it if, if it wasn't for Varane, if you thought it was bad now, it would be it if this isn't a disaster, it would be a disaster. It's it would it would be it would be unholy on a different level if Varane wasn't playing any this is one of the greatest individual defensive seasons I've ever seen. I mean it's on par with Pepe in 13, 14, and 14, 15, and Ramos in 13, 14, which I think was his best defensive season. It's, I mean, it's it's on par with Bonucci 16, 17. I mean, it, it's spectacular, and it's completely being overshadowed because system is always more important than, than individual quality, especially when it comes to defense. And I think it also speaks to the fact that... Varane's been that good that despite that, he's still been able to have a huge impact and... I think he deserves a ton of credit for that, even though it doesn't really have much to do with that game. I think every podcast I'm going to talk about this because yeah. he doesn't get enough credit for it. I've I've seen this narrative floating around that Varane's had a bad season, and anyone who doesn't realize how great Varane has been this season, I just don't trust trust them. Like <laughs> on at any level, on any opinion, like at all. When when you really just are that naive to not understand what Varane has done this season in this. A season of defensive chaos, then you. Just, I'm sorry, you just you just way off the mark. He's he's been amazing. Oh, Marvin, any concluding thoughts? Anything to plug before we wrap it up? No, I'm just really, really, really happy that we're winning again. It's ugly at at times, but that was how we won last season. We won two trophies. I'm just happy we're winning and scoring goals again. I'm with you. Um, Best part of the podcast now was patron shoutouts. So, um, shout out to all you amazing patrons. The list just grows and grows every day. After the PSG game, by the way, um, it was the patron only podcast, and and I woke up the next day and I checked my email, and my email was just flooded with new new pledges. So, thank you to everyone. I'm glad you're on board. Hope you stick with us. Shout out to uh, all of our patrons. Shout out to these patrons specifically who pledge $10 or more. Um, because that's one of the rewards if you pledge $10 or more. So, shout out to Frederick Sundros, Leon Stavernakis, Bjorn Salvador, Nick DeStefane, John Fernandez, Said Mahad, Sergio Monleon, Red Bat, Anthony Vasquez, Yahya Ibrahim, Nick Robero, Eric Rogers, Sheikh Atiri, Ian Marley, Dan Bertha, new patron. Welcome, Dan. Andrew Gomez, Anton Hackberg, Jimmy Obey, Daniel Smith, Solomon Ortiz, and Jeanette. You guys are unbelievable. Thank you so much for all your support. And Om sounds great with his new mic. Thanks to you guys. Yeah, thanks for that, guys. Yeah. And a uh, big shout out to Andrew Caleb Gomez. He is the creator of the sound, the music you hear in the intro and the outro of the new music he's your go-to message him on patreon or twitter um and as always thanks for listening and hala madrid hala madrid Introducing the amazing iPhone XS you'll love on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. It's the perfect way to stay connected to those you heart most. Fall in love with iPhone XS on T-Mobile. And right now, trade in an eligible iPhone and you'll save $300. Visit a store or call 1-800-T-MOBILE. 
If you cancel service, remaining balance is due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. $279.99 down plus 30 per month times 24. Full price $999.99. 0% APR for well-qualified buyers plus tax on full price. Allow eight weeks for rebate.